0: The CMO Confidential Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything podcast network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing, hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome, marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Paul Worthington. Today's topic, why B2B marketing is so bad and what to do about it, part two. This is a continuation of what what your consultant wants to tell you but won't series. Now, Paul has been in the agency and consulting business most of his career, including 11 years at Wolf Olin's, where he served as the head of strategy. He is currently the president of Invention, an innovation consulting company, and recently wrote an article called Weaponizing the Wanamaker Paradox about how the digital revolution has reduced marketing to a little numbers game. Welcome, Paul. Hey Mike, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's really nice to be here. Glad to have you. Now, now, now let's, let's give us an overview. We'll start with B2B as seen through the lens of the consultant or the agency. And it's with a special take on where B2B is after the pandemic, near recession, reevaluation of all companies in the end of easy money. Where is the B2B marketplace now?
1: <laughs> How long do we have? Um, I think that, uh, the first first thing just caveat over um b2b is is so massive it's impossible right. it's and it's non homogenous, and and you can't really uh call it a single category and my experience primarily from a client standpoint is i work mostly with technology companies in the b2b space i work a bit with industrial companies in the b2b space i work a little bit with some healthcare, uh but Primarily, uh, that's my experience. So I'll, I'll probably be a little biased. Yeah, start
0: from there, just give us but, what you think
1: is going on. I, I think let's start with a pandemic because I think the most important thing to understand about the pandemic is the lasting impact of the pandemic with, with one exception is that there hasn't been a whole lot of impact from the pandemic, um, Mean be, meaning, especially in context, right? So if we go back to say March, 2020, you know, everybody with a Medium account was writing that this is the end of everything as we know it. This is the advent of a complete new normal. Nothing will ever be the same. People were writing obituaries for New York City, you know, and and so then we fast forward three years and you go, well, what really changed? Uh, you know, the, I think a lot of the, the supply chain issues have kind of figured themselves out. And so the, really the big change is the, is the work from home and hybrid work. It's more about how we work in terms of office work than it than in turn than anything we do. Uh, but I think there is implications there. So I'd say that um, it it probably uh, pulled, I think we probably moved a decade's worth of innovation and work from home into one year. Um, and then that's why we're doing the pullback to hybrid, right? Because we, we we it was too much change too fast. And so it's going to have to rebalance itself. Uh, I think if you're in the collaboration software business, if you're in real est- commercial real estate, you know because all the demand was pulled forward into collaborative software, you're gonna see two, three, four years of flat, I think. Uh, and commercial real estate's gonna be a bit uh, 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 soft for a while. Um, but I think the big changes that we really need to focus on aren't, aren't really anything directly to do with the pandemic. And, and I think that the three changes that are gonna have the biggest impact moving forward are gonna be uh, interest rates, Going from zero to you it's know a 5%. lot, and that yeah. makes a big. That's the fastest rise of interest rates I think in recorded history. Right, and
0: that has revalued a ton of companies, it's, and it's they're going to come back into the debt market and refi at a much
1: higher rate. Like huge, it's it's massively uh, changed the the kind of capital calculus, and I think that you know we're going to see. Uh, zombie corporations that managed to survive 2023, if we don't see interest rate cuts at the beginning of 24, they're gonna be in real trouble. Uh, I think anybody with weak balance sheets is gonna be in trouble. I think a lot of venture backed companies are finding that it's a lot more difficult to uh, move forwards if they're non-profitable. You know, so that's a big one. I think the second big sh- thing that's really important right now is geopolit- geo- the ble- geopolitical situation is really fundamentally challenging a lot of the precepts of globalization, I think we're seeing tension between the US and China, we're seeing war, we're seeing, you know, the Inflation uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is, is functioning almost as industrial policy, which America hasn't traditionally uh, pursued, whereas Europe has, you know, and that's making a big impact. Uh, and then the final one, I think, is going to be a big impact. Is, is AI? I don't want to overhype that. I think we're so far into the hype cycle of AI that it's extremely difficult to understand exactly what it's go- what's going to happen and where it's going to lead to. Uh, I just think that it's going to be a source of pretty significant expenditure into twenty four. I think there's going to be a lot of promises made. It's going to. We're probably going to have to wait till twenty five or twenty six whether so we can actually see yeah, see if, see if those promises
0: are real. Exactly. I mean, they're going to be real. The question is how fast. But but let's go back to the let's go back to the kind of core of the story, which is let's talk about the Wanamaker paradox. And just so all our listeners get it, take us through the Wanamaker paradox and then give our listeners an overview of your thesis on it.
1: Yeah. So um, there was was there's a department store entrepreneur in the eighteen hundreds called John Wanamaker. And he's attributed, although in Europe, they attribute it to Lord Unilever, so who knows, but he was attributed to saying um, 50% of my advertising is wasted. I just don't know which 50%. And that was subsequently referred to as the Wanamaker paradox. And the Wanamaker paradox kind of ever since has been something of like a sort of Damocles hanging over the head of marketers, you know, which is this idea that it's inherently wasteful, this idea that there is uh, deep levels of inefficiency within the marketing ecosystem that if only the company could figure out how to eliminate right. it
0: would save that 50% of growth would continue exactly as
1: it is. That's right. And that 50% of money saved would go straight to the bottom line as profit and increase the margin of the business. So there's this so there's this ongoing kind of scenario. Um and then And the reason I mentioned this and the reason I focus on this is the weaponization of of the WannaMaker paradox is having consulted for nearly 25 years now um, and having written a a newsletter for the last five, there was this, I was seeing a lot of clients coming with what I'd call the symptoms of brand weakness, right? They'd, They'd be like, we're not growing, um, there's there's a competitor sucking all the oxygen out of the room, you know. Our our sales team are like having to work really hard and and close more business than they perhaps need to because we're not getting enough opportunities in the top of the funnel, you know. So there's all these things going on. They don't know what to do. And then you look at what they've been doing, and they're just pressing the gas pedal harder and harder on kind of bottom of the funnel activities. But that's not where the problem is, right? And then. Um, in doing the research I do to write the newsletter, you start to read about a lot of stuff. And, you, and, and the thing that really sparked it for me was I, I was reading uh, about marketing mixed modeling and I was reading uh, but some stuff that some econometric, uh, econometricians were saying, and, and they made the point that we actually know what's effective, that digital channels now are quite mature. Um, right. this, isn't, this isn't guessing guesswork anymore. Uh, and so there, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and summarize, but the basic gist of what they're saying was, it's not that we don't know what to do, the big pro, and it's not that we're actually wasting because we know what to do. The biggest problem marketing is actually a lack of resources and a chronic underfunding. And as a result, we're artificially constraining the growth of corporations because we're, we're not investing into the opportunity.
0: But you're saying, you're saying, the focus on the bottom of the funnel has overwhelmed the rest of the funnel and one of the core tenants of marketing, which which I think a lot of people say, but the, the real question is, how do you, one, how do you actually prove it? Because every company is kind of like a snowflake. And, and then we're going to get back to this thesis of the big number versus the little number focus. Yeah. Because what you're basically saying, if I have it right, is people have lost track of the top of the funnel and they've optimized the bottom and they forget that they haven't done Jack with the top of the funnel. Is that right?
1: I I think it's a little bit more. um, Now, if we're not careful, what I'm about to say could sound conspiratorial. So I don't want it to come across that way. Um, But podcast conspiracy. I love it. But what I, what what I'm about to say is we've seen a, radical and exponential increase in technology being sold to marketers. So in 2011, there were roughly a hundred marketing solutions available to marketers. In 2023, there was over 11,000. Really? Yeah. Wow. We have seen an exponential growth. And if we look at the budgets that are being put to this, um, I think average CMO uh, marketing budgets roughly break down in quarters, right? So it's about a quarter of it is headcount, about a quarter of it is media, about a quarter is your creative agencies, and a quarter is technology, roughly. And, and, and it moves around a bit, but, and then within the media, like about 60% of that is now digital, right? So if you lump that over into technology, we could pretty safely say that about a third, somewhere between a third and a half almost Are already sitting in the digital space. Is now going into some kind of technology digital space. And what the digital companies figured out very quickly was that in order to maximize their own returns and their own shareholder value, the fastest way to do that was to weaponize waste and inefficiency. And so what they did is they went out there and said, your marketing is wasteful and it's inefficient and we've got all these new ways to do it. Very complex ways to do it, very opaque ways to do it, Uh, but they're all new and we can, and we can give you very precise measurement. So in 2011 was the first time I had a client who came, he just had a meeting with Facebook and he came back and he was waxing lyrical about the opportunity for him to create the perfect ad, which would be one-to-one personalized exactly to the individual and exactly the moment he needed it exactly as he wants it. And this, and this was, this was the promise, right? That this Perfectly efficient approach. That, I mean,
0: that's been the promise of so many and every tech company. Having done it, we did, actually did a show on the Martech Stack. But um, the the real issue is it assumes that everybody's ready to buy when they get the ad and that they know the brand, and, and they don't. So a lot of times they don't. But the the also the addition of private equity, which is like, oh my god, efficiency is going to drive so much. Uh, multiple of our stock price get more and more efficient. And and in this Watermaker paradox, you've said everyone has moved from this big number to the little number. I think yeah. you're onto that now. Tell us a little more, because I, I love the, we're, we're up to over 11,000 uh, companies
1: now from 1,000. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think that uh, I'd say metrics and measurement has become an in crazy doom loop for so many marketers, not just in B2B, but, but, but very much so in B2B. And we've started measuring all these little things that have very little impact on the value, the, the overall value of the corporation, right? If the, if, the, if the C-suite is there at the behest of the board, representing the shareholders to advocate for shareholder value creation, then that's what they're being measured on. And, and that's their goal. And yet, marketing metrics have strayed further and further and further away from that value creation paradigm over time. And now we're drowning in these metrics. Um, and when I say little numbers, what I mean is little as in little impact, meaningfully on the business. Actually, the the numbers themselves are often kind of laughably huge. <laughs> you know, right. millions of impressions and billions of of of, of people see, and 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 you can't really make head and the tail of it. And, and I think that um, if marketing were stronger, it would need fewer metrics. And- I, I agree with this,
0: and and I also think the in a lot of tech companies, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the focus on customer acquisition cost or CAC and the idea that you could just talk about CAC and make it more efficient misses the rest of the equation, which is you still have to have more customers coming in eventually. Yeah. Uh, I mean- one hundred percent. So talk, um, talk about that because, right? I think what you've said is this focus on ROI is picking apart the function. It's moving it into an efficiency function instead of a growth function, um, and boards and CEOs are rewarding this and driving it and measuring it. So what? What do you do
1: about it? Um, well, let me let me just a couple of things on ROI. I mean. I think the big thing, I, I, I mean, I really love the, you know, the the quote, what gets measured gets managed.
0: Yeah. Well, Sadly, my almost everybody I've ever worked with has used that quote. Yeah.
1: yeah. What gets measured gets managed. Right. Well, my experience is that what gets measured gets managed is nonsense. Uh, what's easy to get measured gets manipulated. And what's hard to measure gets ignored completely. Um But what's most interesting, and I think this is what's really applicable to the marketing world we're in right now today, is the origins of that quote are actually completely the polar opposite of what everybody thinks when they use it. It actually came from a a paper written by a guy called V.F. Ridgway in 1956. And the paper was called The Dysfunctional Consequences of Performance Measurement. And the full quote, which I think is very apropos is this, what gets measured gets managed even when it's pointless to measure and manage it, and even if it harms the purpose of the organization to do so. And so the origination of that quote was actually a warning against measuring everything just for the sake of measuring it. And I think that's where we've got to this point. And and, and if we use that to segue into ROI specifically, I think the advent of ROI is kind of the one ring that rules them all for marketers. (laughs) Is that it's actually probably the most destructive metric ever to have entered the marketing lexicon. I think more value has been destroyed uh, on the guise of uh, ROI than any other metric in the history of marketing, um, because it's a measure of efficiency. So what so what it means is, when you spend less and you and you make some sales, then your ROI goes up. So you actually have marketers who will actively cut budget to hit ROI targets, sure. even if mean, they know that it means making less sales. Well, what it does is it, it, it
0: doesn't factor in growth over time very well. And I, I think the other thing, if you want a perfect ROI, you will just get the customers that already know the brand and will buy it and you'll be done.
1: Yeah, well, um, let's take, take that one example. And this is a consumer example, but I think it's, it's relevant, right? The most expensive ad product that Meta sells um, is the one that has the highest ROI that it can deliver, right? And on the uh, and on the Meta dashboard, it looks like it's the highest performing thing you could do, which is why you should spend so much money on it. When you look at what the marketing mix modelers will tell you, is they will tell you that the reason the ROI is so high is because you're selling to people that were already going to buy from you. They're already
0: going to buy you, right. And that's a, that's a perfect ROI. You don't have to spend yep. any money on them. So you you will, you, in addition to this argument in our talk, uh, previous, you said this obsession is creating a competitive weakness for a lot of companies and tell us what you mean by that and then how you would attack these companies that have a competitive weakness if you were yeah. saying that.
1: I, I think that we, what I don't like about this conversation around why is B2B marketing so bad? Yes, there's some people do great B2B marketing, others, but a lot of it isn't very good. It's pretty ineffective. It's not very creative, all those things. But we always start at the symptom and not the cause, right? And yeah. I think we have to start at the cause. And if the cause is largely two things, right? Chronic underfunding of the marketing function itself combined with a really fundamental lack of understanding of how marketing works at the top of the organization. And you combine those two things, you, you have a lack of growth. Now, if we look at the stock market last year, the S&P 500 rose by 25, 24, 25%. If you remove the top seven technology companies from that, so you yeah, remove the Amazon's, broke, the Apple's, yeah. the Google's of this world, it was flat. We have we essentially have flat growth at a at, at a company value level, um, and we have all these problems of declining click through rates, you know, sales teams who can't make quota, all these things happening. Um, so it is a competitive weakness. So if we so what's really interesting is if we flip this equation away from why is it so bad to say it's actually a huge opportunity, right? Because if you think about it through a competitive uh, strategy- Right,
0: if you fund this, you're gonna take share from guys that aren't playing
1: well. 100%, right? So if you think about competitive strategy, one of the big things you're trying to do is figure out, what are my competitors' weaknesses so that I can exploit those weaknesses? And I think if we look across multiple categories in the B2B space, you could pretty confidently look at the players and say, their marketing is a weakness for that company and we can exploit that weakness and we can turn ourselves into the people that are sucking all the oxygen out of the room if we're willing to do the two things I said, right? Fund it appropriate to the opportunity, build it backwards from the value creation thesis and uh, increase massively the knowledge at the top of the company as to how marketing works. So
0: this is such a good concept that I agree with, but how do you get it through a company particularly in B2B, particularly, let's say, private equity owned, where the entire focus is on, I'm going to increase the efficiency of this company. What What's some tips you have for, if you're a marketer in this job, how do you go about reversing what is almost a universal trend towards efficiency?
1: Um, I actually, genuinely, uh, I would say, I think the b 2 uh, sorry, private equity owned companies are probably in the best position to move forwards with a different approach. Um, and the reason, I, and, and I'll give you the reasons, and I'll answer the question you asked. Um, the reason is, Yes, they're about efficiency, but more than anything else, private equity companies are about growing the value of the corporation. Yeah, they, I mean their whole thing is return to limited partners. So yeah, exactly. So they're they're buying. I'm, I'm ignoring the corporate radar side of private equity. It's breaking companies up and selling off yeah. the pieces. I'm I'm focusing re- right now on the growth oriented side. Right, they're buying right. companies that are slightly broken in some way. They're increasing the mark the management competence, and then they're uh, and they have an investment thesis that we're working against, and then they're trying to grow that company, and they're going to take that thing out of the public markets for what, three, five years and before having some kind of a liquidity event. Yep. So they're perfectly poised, right? They don't have the the glare of public markets for short-term return. Right. They
0: don't have a bunch of investors that will sell the stock, so. You got a three
1: to five year window to, to manage this across, which is a pretty good window when you think about how marketing effects work. Um, you've got, they've got a ton of dry powder waiting to be applied. And they're sitting on top of a lot of companies that they overpaid for in the 0% interest days that they need to hold for longer than they're used to. And they have to be more active in, build, in increasing the value. They have to build companies.
0: the top line because they're not going to get the multiple. That's but, right. But so one of the things we talked about, I want I to put up two questions together. Yeah. We talked about how hard it is to measure this stuff and how hard it is to predict it in advance. So if I'm sitting there in the PE company where I'm being demanded to grow the business to get the exit that I want, yep. How, as a marketer or an agency, do I go in and sell this idea against a lot of people that might be at the very least suspicious about its outcome?
1: Yeah. I, look, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that it's gonna be easy. Um, well,
0: it's definitely not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because because it's not. But but I think that we have to look at this through the lens of classic competitive advantage environments, right? The people who take advantage of competitive weaknesses are rarely, um, it's, it's a bell curve, right? There's always a leading right, group right, right, within right, that right. bell curve, and they have a different risk appetite. So I think what will happen here is that it's going to be uh, somebody that has a risk appetite that says, this is a lever that I'm willing to pull and I'm willing to go and, and invest in pulling this lever.
0: Uh, and I think especially in B2B, if you have a better product for real, it's gonna pay out. Uh, if you do it right, it will
1: pay out because you will you will jack up sales. Yeah, uh, I mean, the interesting thing about the product mentality though in B2B is that it's it's often uh, misplaced, right? So if you look at a lot of time, a lot of the clients that I will deal with when I'm interviewing their customers. Uh, so th- so here's the the dis- the disconnect you see, right? the companies juke it out for product leadership, right? My product is 5% faster than your product, right? Right, in, yeah, yeah. And that trades hands quite often, right? It might be every three months, six months, 12 months, whatever it might be, right? But the client is saying, I'm looking for somebody that I'm gonna do business with for three, four, five plus years. So in, what they tend to do is they tend to go, here's three companies who all have a product that's good enough, I've already decided. Now I wanna go speak to those companies and who do I wanna do business with? And it's yeah. a different question, right? They're not asking about product performance anymore. They're asking about, you know, if shit goes wrong at three in the morning, are you gonna fix it for me? And is it gonna be supported? You know, Are you gonna be a business partner and help me grow my business? Are you, what's your technical vision? What's your product roadmap? Where are you gonna be in three years? Does that overlap with where I'm gonna be? And what so many B2B corporations get stuck on is the product. And the, the client is, the prospect has already decided the product is good enough. Yeah. And so they get really frustrated because the, the salesperson is going, let me show you feature number 52.
0: No, and it- I, I think this
1: is, and, and I
0: saw this a lot in, in the consumer business when I was at, at Best Buy, which is, yes, when the Pentium 1 came out, it was great. The Pentium 2 was great. You get to like the, the Pentium 27 and people are like, I, I, I don't even know what it does. I know yeah. I'm not using all this stuff. And. I don't need 10 million pixels on my camera. Five million are enough. Um, yeah. But you have this relentless drive of what got you there won't won't get you further. Yeah,
1: and 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 but to your point, I think that there, there's a I think there's a really important thing we need to understand about when we look at the the B2B environment. Um, the re- I talked about brand weakness. I actually think brands are more important in many t- cases in the B2B environment than they are in the B2C environment. And, and the reason that they're so important is they typically are corporate brands rather than product brands. And there's typically a large, very large uh, portfolio of SKUs that sit underneath. Yeah. And, and, and when you get into the sales conversation, you really can't afford to be wasting your time at every level in the organization having to start from square one and say, well, who am I? Right, so yeah, you, I you get in the door, and you explain who you are, and then you persuade them that you're credible, and then they, you show them what you can do, and then you get to the, almost to the end of the sales process and you get to the most senior people in the organization that are actually gonna write the check, you know? And they go, who are you?
0: <laughs> no, no, you I to get start that. again. Um, so if I'm sitting in the marketing seat now in B2B, let's just say B2B tech to make it easy, yeah. what should I be doing right now um, Yeah. Assuming I can, just theoretically, what should I be thinking about
1: or do? Um, I think, to be honest, I'll I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think this starts with the CMO. I think this starts with the CEO. Yeah. Um, I think it has to be. And if you're a CMO, I think you have to be having the ear of your CEO and showing what's possible. And I think you need to be explaining in business terms how marketing works, you know. And I think we have a, a lexicon that's being developed by a lot of people. You know, I think the B two B Mark Institute, LinkedIn, do a great job. I think we're seeing a lot of really valuable work coming out of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in Australia. There's a lot of people out there doing stuff. Uh, you know, the ability to talk about short-term tactics as, you know, as growing short-term cash flows, the idea of brand building is creating a baseline for future cash flows. There's a lot of ways in which you can yeah, have talk that. talk
0: finance. Yeah. We, we have a exactly. good thing on I, how PE really thinks about marketing.
1: Yeah, and but what I would also say, and this is going to sound maybe a bit controversial, but I genuinely believe that when we say that marketers need to learn the language of finance, we're actually short-shifting the business in a really fundamental way. Because if marketers learn the language of finance, all they're ever gonna be able to do is argue for the budget that they're being given, right? There's not a partnership there. What we have to do is flip that around and say, marketing is a core driver of growth for the company. CFOs are tasked with understanding where the drivers and levers of growth for the company are. So it's actually incumbent upon the CFO to learn how marketing works. And I think if CFOs were to actually learn how marketing works, they would demand very different things of their CMOs. And I think that the CMO CFO partnership would be so much stronger. Um, you know, if you think about this the problem that, you know, this ROI focused, efficiency focused, you know, little numbers, metrics that make no sense to the way the organization is trying to grow. You know, right now they look at that and go, well, that makes no sense. Um but I think the only way to get there is that you know, yes, as much as marketers need to become more business oriented, more numerate, I think CFOs need to really be much more at proactive in learning and figuring out how marketing. We works. do have a
0: couple of shows on this for growth, so I agree with you on that. We're we're just about out of time, so I'll give you a you pick question. <laughs> Funniest story you want to tell on the air, or practical advice we haven't discussed yet? Pick, just pick one of those two, and then then we'll wrap the show.
1: I'm gonna connect the dots a little bit. So about 11 or 12 years ago, I was working in Japan. Uh, I had a client that was an international bank and they were competing with local banks in a, in a market. It's pretty tough for international players to operate domestic Japanese banking. And um, they created a Me Too product, exactly mirroring uh, what domestic competitors were doing. And they launched it and they got zero sales and when i spoke to them about this and they were telling me what was going on they talked about saying we have 5% market share so our our natural share is 5% and I, and i was and i had to exp- be it really took me back cuz i was saying there's no such thing as a natural share of market you have to earn every sh- percent of share right and i think this is something we see all the time in the b2b world where people copy the same product, essentially copy the same service, copy the marketing playbooks, like it's so much the same. And I think the big piece of practical advice I could give is especially if we are resource constrained, it is unbelievably important to stand out, to be distinctive, to not be anything like anybody else. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that when you think about brand effects, most of the effects, the positive brand effects you get come from scale. But the other piece of the axis is in what I call being special. And that can come in many forms, right? And the way you achieve scale is through having something that's really special to yeah, some people. That, a a better value, on. a better story, something better. And so I think that's the thing is anybody in the B2B environment right now needs to really recognize what is it that makes us special and how do I reinforce that over and over and over again? Uh, because it is super competitive. I think budgets are gonna be under pressure in a way that they haven't perhaps been before. I think there's a come to Jesus moment coming for SaaS uh, very soon. Uh, I think a lot of companies have spent a lot of money on SaaS without really having any sense about where and what, how, what they're spending it on. Um, so yeah, I think if that's coming, this it's so important to stand out so focus on what makes you special focus on what makes you really different so i think that's a great way to end the
0: show thank you paul for being on the show and thanks everyone for listening to cmo confidential look for more of our shows on spotify apple and youtube which include the top five reasons b2b marketers get fired uh why is b2b marketing so bad and what to do about it part one um and operations trained CEO dishes on what he really thinks about marketing and the case for simplicity in a complex world. Hey, all you marketers, stay safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential.